someone to be around you. Someone to sit down and pour you short But sometimes saying goodbye to familiar folks is the only way. Sometimes that's when you finally find your space. Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Pellegrini, recording in Tokyo. And with me, as always, in Fukuoka, Japan, is my co-host, Stephen Lyman. We're both certified shochu and awamori professionals, published authors. And as we discussed in our WTO GI episodes, we both love the real sense of place in traditional Japanese spirits production. We've been exploring the wonderful world of Japanese spirits for a combined three decades, and we're very excited to share them with you through this podcast. Stephen, how you doing? Doing well, Christopher. It's been a little while since we've recorded. We had recorded those GI episodes back in August, and now we're in October. Uh, so we, you know, it's been a, been a few minutes since we, we did this, but glad to be back in the home studio uh, recording a new episode on a topic that I think those episodes set us up really nicely for. Yeah, absolutely. The word terroir, and I apologize to all the French speakers out there. I'm going to mispronounce and mangle the pronunciation of that word all episode and lifelong. So please don't hate me, us too much. But it's a word that everybody deems to be very desirable, wants to attach to everything that they're doing if they're making things from agricultural products. And so it's kind of like the elephant in the room. You're going to have to define what that means for you in your space at some point. And I'm not really sure that everybody's comfortable doing that necessarily. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I also, I guess I should apologize to our French speaking listeners because you speak a beautiful language. I do not speak it. And so we're going to say terroir. But you're right. It's, It's really a matter of coming up with a workable definition that fits your sensibility. I mean, we could be extremely pedantic about it and refer to the Oxford English Dictionary, which I'm sure we'll do at some point during the episode. But I think it is a little bit amorphous. It's it's a little bit like saying craft or artisan or these kinds of words. Mm-hmm. They can be fraught, right? Because Suntory, one of the largest spirits makers in the world, they're making craft chuhais. They come in cans, they're available in every convenience store in Japan, but they have craft on the label. Of course, they're not craft. Words have no meaning. In some ways, I mean, it's, but these, you know, we need, we need an agreed upon definition. And I know in the wine world, terroir is very clearly defined. Yeah. But in the spirits world, I think it's a little more amorphous. Fair. What's our working definition then? Well, why don't you give me yours? I'll give you mine and then we'll go to the dictionary. How about that? We'll go to the, go to the, the replay booth. Okay. Uh, I think that we've talked about this quite a bit on other we might have even talked about in other jd episodes honestly but i know that we get into it on show tuesday occasionally the uh, the concept of terroir and for me it really is everything that is happening in the place where those products are being made whether it's whether it's food or drink but in this case we're only referring to drinks and in the shochu space and awamori space we're talking about spirits as well as everything else on this show I think that it involves the ingredients, absolutely. I think it it involves the people, the place, everything that's happening in that microbiome. That is all part of the terroir. The water is involved, the whatever uh, microorganisms tend to chill in that part of the world, in that specific locale is part of the terroir story, if you can manufacture one. And the provenance of the ingredients is paramount. 
I think. And if that provenance is unknown, then I think your your grasp of or your ability to claim some level of terroir or to describe it accurately is quite tenuous. You know, I I don't want this to be a super short episode, but I don't think we're going to disagree that much on how to define it. I use a very general definition, and that is sense of place. You use that in the intro. Of course, I wrote the intro, so I put it in there on purpose. But I think of terroir as a sense of place. You're experiencing something that reflects the essence of the place in which it's made, right? Which you don't get in lots of products. Coca-Cola is made in factories all over the world. Sure. There's nothing about a Coca-Cola that gives you a sense of place. Now, a Dr. Brown's celery soda may give you a sense of place because it's made one place and it's a very, very unique soft drink. But does that qualify as terroir? Probably not. But just as an example of how you have a spectrum, right? Sure. Of mass produced all the way to single batch handcrafted. And of course, when we're talking about terroir, we're talking much more on the small batch end of things. But I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily meet the definition of terroir if you're using ingredients or other aspects of your production that do not reflect your place where you're making it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe we go to the dictionary. What do you think? Yeah, sure. What does Oxford have to say about this? Yeah. So the English Oxford Dictionary defines terroir as, one, the complete natural environment in which a particular wine is produced, including factors such as the soil, topography, and climate. Number two. Two, the characteristic taste and flavor imparted to a wine by the environment in which it is produced. So it really is a definition intended for wine, since that's where the concept started. That makes sense. But if we just take the word wine and replace that with alcohol, Mm -hmm. then that is the Oxford definition. And of course, and this is where I think things get a little bit weird with spirits, which I think is probably where we're going to spend part of our conversation, is with the wine, you're pressing the grapes, you're fermenting the sugars, you're filtering, bottling, right? It's a it's a very, I guess, in some ways, analog, ancient process, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's minimal intervention in the winemaking because in traditional winemaking, anyway, you're using natural yeasts, you're not distilling, so you're not extracting the spirit, spiritual essence of the wine. You're just bottling what you're making. In spirits, it gets more complicated because you're using distillation and you are usually introducing commercial yeasts and things like that. So there's other aspects to it that I think make it a little bit more complicated uh, in mm-hmm. in the spirits tradition as, as opposed to the wine tradition. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. I think that especially when you're talking about multiple rounds of distillation, especially you divorce yourself further and further from the ingredients that were used to construct the fermentation. And I think this is where a lot of spirits makers and spirits aficionados get a little nervous around the word terroir because your claim to it, your your ability to use it in a genuine manner is tripped up by some of the technology that's used to complete your bottled product. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a, a very um, interesting word to see bandied about in various circles, one of which, of course, is the sake world. Mm-hmm. And I know that I do recall being part of a terroir type conversation on one of their podcast episodes on on sake on air. It was interesting to hear the struggle of a bunch of experts on in this category who were very aware that they weren't entirely 
Um, they didn't know exactly where the rice was coming from at all times. They were sure that it was domestic sources, but they weren't necessarily certain that it was a field a hundred meters away from the brewery or a hundred kilometers away from the brewery or some f- factor of that. Mm-hmm. It's something that's on everybody's mind. And I think it's something that it's a word that has been protected pretty effectively just because it's such a basic definition. As you say, sense of place, it's a, a connection to the location where that product is made. And the more little bits and pieces of that entire product that come from that location, the better. You can't really, I don't know what's the word, you can't really shortcut that. So mm-hmm. if your rice or your grapes or your barley is from prefectures, if not oceans away, then you have less of a story to tell. You have less of a, a way to, uh, at least in terms of ter- terroir, you can't necessarily define your flavor profile as a terroir thing. And I think it doesn't really matter for a lot of spirits makers, quite frankly, especially especially those that are um, relying on aging vessels that are going to impart their own flavor. What do you think about that? No, I I think you're absolutely right. In the whiskey world, we know that most barley for Scotch whiskey, which is probably the most recognized whiskey category globally, most of that barley is not from Scotland. It's not from the fields near the distillery. There is some local barley used, but a lot of it is, is either from other parts of the UK or even overseas. And yet, Scotch whiskey has a very clear sense of place, right? Different regions of Scotland have different uh, associated flavor profiles based on their use of, you know, their local peat, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether or not they're near the ocean, there's might be some brininess from the salt air. Like there's all things that contribute to the final distillate that are unrelated to the grain itself. Mm -hmm. And I think in the sake world, it's, it's a little bit more clear if you're using a variety of rice from your prefecture that's specifically designed to grow in that climate, then I think you're more in a terroir territory when it comes to sake. But I remember listening to the episode you mentioned for Sake on Air. I thought it was a fascinating discussion. I wish I had listened to it again before this one, although that might have given me like extra ammunition uh, in our discussion. But it was interesting to me how carefully people were treading on the concept when it came to sake. Yeah, we were walking on eggshells there. Yeah. And I feel like in sake, it's actually a more defensible proposition when you're talking about premium sake than it is for other Japanese alcohol traditions, especially uh, spirits. But I want to take you a step back because you were a commercial brewer and a home brewer. And if you were to think about terroir in beer, how is that constructed? I think it's very similar to the um, scotch reference that you made earlier in terms of, you know, the malted grains are being shipped to the brewery in 50 pound sacks. And they're from reputable and very reliable malters. So we're getting a similar product every time with a, a certain level of, you know, the, depending on the malt that you're purchasing and what your mash bills are, you know that you can de- depend on the, the chocolate malt or the, you know, the pale malt from this particular vendor to always be consistent. That consistency is key if you're trying to make a replicable product. But I think it's also something that sort of takes a little bit away from your your claim to terroir. And that's not a word that we ever used. We were more focused on small batch, which we felt was our true calling card. We were a microbrewery. This was kind of before the word craft was really being used ad nauseum. Mm-hmm. And our yeast was a commercial yeast that we 
were repitching from one batch to another to maintain consistency. And so we had our recipes and our recipes were the defining quality metric for those products. And terroir never once came into the conversation. That's that's fair. And I think that was early days in the craft beer world. And the concept of terroir might have entered the conversation later. And maybe terroir is not as important in beer because it really is about that consistency, the ability to create something that is delicious and reflects your own philosophy about what you want your beer to taste like. It's not so much about the fact that you're using barley grown near the brewery or that sort of thing. Sure. Um, but, and then, you know, as we went through the GI episodes, of course, we had done Awamori a while ago, and I really think we need to go back and do a deep dive on Awamori in the relatively near future. Definitely. But you can go back to listen to that episode. Then we did the three episodes on the other three GIs, the geographical indications right. for shochu yeah. in Kuma shochu, rice shochu from Kumamoto, uh, Iki shochu, the barley shochu from Iki Island in Nagasaki, and then Satsuma shochu, uh, sweet potato shochu from Kagoshima. And if you read the actual standards by which those four GIs qualify for the GI, only one of them requires local produce, right? Yeah, satsuma. That's right. So the sweet potato shochu in Kagoshima, I think, is the one case in which you can make an argument for terroir in shochu without question. Mm-hmm. Across the board. Yeah. And I would, yeah. I would, I would caveat that with specifically for brands in which the provenance of the potatoes is known, meaning the distillery has a relationship with the farmer or the distillery is growing their own. Mm -hmm. That's where I think you absolutely have no question about it being a terroir-driven spirit, but that doesn't apply to all of the brands, right? No, it certainly doesn't. And I think if you're talking about, if you want to bring wine back into the conversation here in terms of when we think about terroir and wine, we're thinking about grapes grown in this, on this per- particular side of the hill with this particular amount of sun exposure and and the heat being this during the day and the heat being this at night and and all of these things that are transported into the flavor profile of the wine i don't think that there's a a better candidate be- for being a terroir driven shochu than sweet potato shochu made in the satsuma tradition mm-hmm. whereby all as you said all of the sweet potatoes are local and they're they're grown and harvested within the prefecture and there aren't many comparable stories to that of an ingredient that spends its entire life underground in the soil Mm -hmm. okay i know you can argue yeah but there's so much floating on the wind and yeah that's very romantic i love it but the story of the soil in kagoshima is is a real story unto itself in that it's so ashy. It's so heavily affected by the volcanoes that are all over the place in that region. And that affects how well the sweet potatoes grow and and their flavor profile, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. And due to the nature of Honkaku Shochu taxation laws being as they are and keeping ABVs under 45% and single pot distillation being the mechanism used to get there, you really maintain the flavor profile and the aroma profile, even after a single round of distillation, you're still getting a lot of it. You're not getting all of it, sure. And you're getting a purified form of whatever was in the fermentation, but you're still getting a rather faithful representation of the 
oils, the, the fatty acids, the earthiness, the ashiness, all the minerality in the soil that those sweet potatoes spent their entire lives in, save for the 24 hours before they're steamed and, and shredded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are certainly sweet potato shochu made from potatoes very close to Sakurajima, the volcano that dominates the, the skyline in central Kagoshima. And there's ash flavor in the distillate. Mm -hmm. It comes from the soil into the potatoes, into the drink. And that to me is always fascinating. I don't always expect it and I don't always notice it. But when I notice it, it becomes very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And that to me is probably the most clear sense of terroir I get from sweet potato shochu. When it's from potatoes that are further from the volcano or or even from Miyazaki Prefecture to the east, that ashiness is absent, right? It just doesn't exist because the soil is is much more neutral. Mm-hmm. So, no, I think that's absolutely a very clear example. And of course, maybe we'll stick on sweet potato for a minute. I think we can come up with very specific brands that are clearly terroir spirits. And of course, front of mind, I think for both of us would be Kuryo and Tsurushi from Yachi Yoden where they are hand harvesting estate grown potatoes. They've, they've bought up fields. Their goal now, actually, I don't know if they've reached it yet, but their goal is to grow all of their own potatoes for all of the shochu they make, which that's nuts, but that is crazy. <laughs> that's their goal. And they're, they're not a, they're not a tiny place, right? This isn't like we need to have, have a couple of fields to grow some potatoes to make our shochu. They need like lots and lots and lots of land. And I know that they had that goal. I don't know if they've reached it. We should probably figure that out. But Kryo and Sudushi in particular, because the potatoes are aged before fermentation, they have to be hand harvested so you don't damage the skins and you don't break off the root ends to, to initiate rot. So mm-hmm. really, really specific terroir-driven spirits there. And there are certainly other distilleries that either grow their own potatoes or work with specific farmers for specific brands. And to me, that's mm-hmm. very clear terroir. Mm-hmm. Can you think of any other examples in the sweet potato shochu world that have that kind of that story or that connection with the, either they're growing their own potatoes or they have uh, close relationships with the farmers? Well, certainly Yamato Zakura, I think, has that close connection to the farmers. And I know that a lot of other distilleries do as well. It's just that we, and by we, I mean you, have a particularly close relationship with that distillery. So um, we know for a fact, um, having visited their their fields and and seen him interact with the farmer. I mean, it's a, a different story from a lot of, well, you know, a lot of beverage alcohol pr- producers, not just in shochu, but um, beyond that, they don't really have relationships with the folks that are night and day looking over the crops and delivering the, the quality raw materials that the breweries and distilleries need in order to pursue and ensure their livelihood. So, I'm sure there are others, but the one that springs to mind just right off the bat would be Yamato Zakura. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. And it's not everything he makes, it, his main brands. He, he's working with a broker to get potatoes. They're usually from the area, but he doesn't necessarily know the farmer individually. But then some of his premium or his uh, limited brands, he's working with local farmers to get their potatoes because that's who he likes working with. Sure, sure, sure. So I was going to branch out to a another area in the in the shochu world where there's a different type of terroir story i don't know if is is this a good time to do that sure i mean this is we really didn't script this to any great degree we really wanted this to be a discussion and and uh 
yeah. So hit me with it. What do you got? Well, the other one that for me is very terroir, I think, is the Aotu story and others like it in the island south of Tokyo, honestly. It's the Izu Shoto island chain. And they're not the only places in Japan do this that do this, but Aochu, which is made on Aogashima, this tiny little volcanic island where there's about two, less than 200 residents and it's a very difficult island to access. I think they used to use it for exiling people, political prisoners, essentially, way back in the day. And a lot of those prisoners happen to be from, you guessed it, Kagoshima or what is Kagoshima today. And they brought their knowledge of sweet potato shochu distillation methods with them. And so there are sweet potato shochu brands made on that island of only 200 people. And they do what maybe you could call a double wild fermentation mm-hmm. in that both the koji and the yeast are, they're natural, they're wild, they're biologically part of the distillery and the, you know, the forests and the, the, fa- the flora surrounding the fields where the, the, uh, the raw materials are harvested. So that to me is also, they could easily claim a, or, or tell a story, including a terroir component, because that's really about the place right there. When everything that is not only the raw materials, but also the, the agents that help ensure a healthy fermentation are also, they're part of the environment. Honestly, I don't think there's a better way to describe it. They leave the windows open in the distillery and they hope for the best, really. And they create some really fascinating products over there. And I think if they're not doing so already, that's a story they can absolutely tell as part of their branding, as part of their, as part of the reason why their products taste the way they do. You know, I I had a number of different avenues that I thought we might go with this discussion and you went right to... Like <laughs> maybe the most terroir-driven spirit on earth. <laughs> I mean, when they're growing their own potatoes, they're cultivating their own koji, which nobody does that. Nobody. Mm-hmm. And their own yeast. And it's all wild fermentation. That's just next level terroir when it comes to spirits, right? Even yep. to me, even like locally harvested barley or rice doesn't even touch that level of sense of place. And and mm-hmm. choose wild. There's no other shochu like it when you try it, right? So that's a that's a fantastic example. But I feel like we went from like the kiddie pool to the deep end of the pool without any of the anything <laughs> middle parts. We, we at least need a we need some sort of flotation device to get us ourselves <laughs> yeah, no, over there. So no question. What's the in between then. What did I skip over? No, no, no. I think that was a great sort of showing, you know, we were just talking about, you know, Yachi Yoden harvesting their own sweet potatoes and their whole process, but they're still using commercial yeast, even if they're doing a little bit of pitching from other fermentations, right? Um, and they're still buying commercial koji. So I don't, I don't think anybody else does what Aochu does. But where I think this conversation starts to get interesting is when we get out of Satsuma and out of the Izu Islands with the amazing local terroir of their spirits and get into the other GIs and other parts of Japan making shochu and to what degree what they're making is terroir driven. Mm-hmm. One example that comes to mind pretty easily for me is kokuto shochu. Sure. Kokuto sugar is a very traditional Japanese way of refining sugar, but not really refining it, just making it into something that's consumable uh, by getting rid of all the, all the cane itself. I think when you have a kokuto sugar shochu that's made from locally 
grown and produced kokuto, that's pretty clearly terroir driven. Sure. We can argue about the rice that's used for the koji starter, but the kokuto itself being sometimes single origin farm cane, Mm -hmm. that's a pretty compelling story for me on the terroir side of it. But it's almost like partial terroir, right? The rice is probably from from somewhere in mainland Japan, uh, not from the Amami Islands. Uh, They just don't grow very much rice down there. Maybe there are brands that do that, but I'm just not aware of them. But then most kokudo shochu is made with kokudo imported from overseas. Right. So it's yeah. not, and those clearly don't have the, or at least from Okinawa. Yeah. Well, that's, that's overseas, right? They're crossing a sea. Yeah. Fair. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's far enough away. You can't swim there. That's for sure. Yeah. But even some, some brands are made with Kokuto sugar from the Philippines. Right. So, it, and which is a great sugar producing region. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to use Filipino sugar cane. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not terroir. It's not from a mummy. So it doesn't have that sense of place that it would if it had been. Uh, cultivated there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Similarly, I think there are barley's and barley and rice shochus that are made with local ingredients. Right. That's it's an yeah, exception, right. but it happens. Mm-hmm. But I, and I think less so there. I guess the one example that I think of that's definitely terroir is Jiga. Then, right? We talked about sure. this brand in the Kuma shochu episode. This is gr- rice grown by the distillery next to the distillery with the local friends and family coming and helping with the planting and the harvesting and it's all organic and it's just a you know a single field origin rice shochu and that's about as terroir as you could probably get in rice shochu um how about in barley are you you familiar with any locally grown barley types well i know that samwa shurui has one brand that uses domestic barley i believe it's one brand and then also some other Oita barley shochu makers are using, they have one or more expressions that use oita harvested barley and it's expensive and it's, mm-hmm. it's usually quite good too. Yep. Uh, but it's, it's, it can't really, they can't really produce it at a level or at least sell it at a pace that would warrant bringing or harvesting and purchasing so much more of this local barley. And, uh, the, imported stuff i think a lot of the barley is imported from australia actually is just too cost effective and mm-hmm. um, too consistent and too high quality of a product frankly for them to forsake it in favor of what would be a terroir story maybe that's a lack of ima- imagination maybe that's a very fickle consumer class not allowing or not you know, being very happy with what they've had for a long time and saying, well, I'm not going to pay more for this other product that you also make, but you're now claiming that it's, there's a premium on it that I got to pay because what the barley's from here. Okay. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure they've done a great job of convincing people or teaching people that that's worthy of anything. And I think this is probably a challenge that everyone faces. How do you harness the inherent value in locally produced raw materials? Mm-hmm. Uh, the ingredients that go into your fermentation, I think that that necessarily is going to involve more money being transferred or more cost being transferred to the consumer. And a lot of manufacturers over here will just tell you flat out that people won't pay for it. Right. And they may be right. I'll pay for it. And I know <laughs> you'll pay for it, but sure. we're probably not average consumers. No, no doubt. It's interesting because we just had this a, a similar conversation with a maker down in Okinawa who was 
very, very hesitant to use the word terroir, but wanted to at least be talking about the local nature of some aspects of the fermentation. And that, of course, is their kind of house yeast, which only they use, obviously. It wouldn't be a house yeast if they, I guess, if they were sharing it with everybody. And then also there, I believe they have some sort of kind of locally adjusted or locally tweaked koji as well. And they were saying, well, this is kind of a terroir story, isn't it? And and we were like, yeah, it absolutely is. I don't know if you want to use the word terroir necessarily, but you can absolutely start focusing on the local nature of these very important, well, they're they're the whole thing that makes fermentation happen. So it's really interesting you you don't have to use a terroir word. That vocabulary doesn't have to hit your copy. Mm-hmm. But I think it really is important to focus, if you can, on the local nature of your products. And maybe, and this is something that is often lost on people, but I think is really important. It's the people who make it too. The people are part of the terroir, in my definition anyway, of what terroir is. Because the people are, I mean, why don't they want you to, to eat natto before you go into a brewery or a distillery, right? Because you are a vehicle for microorganisms that can affect the fermentation, either in a positive way or a negative way, usually negatively from the brewery's perspective or the distillery's perspective. And therefore, the workers inside of those facilities that are there day in and day out are a part of that microbiome. And I think that they are... You know, just as some distilleries or breweries are loath to clean the walls too much or to change the roof out, even though it might be collapsing, they're also, you're changing because you change the product, obviously, if you do such a thing, you're sort of changing the product if you hire a new toji, right? Mm -hmm. You've got a new person making the product. They bring their own new story, their own walking microbiome. It's a new puzzle piece in there that could affect things in a way that you might not necessarily intend. And so um, I think talking about people as a part of this local story, if your products are being made by real humans and not computers, which happens all the time, obviously, and no disrespect because we need those products too. But when it's people doing things by hand, that's a really powerful story. And so I think you might not know where your rice is from, for instance. You might not be able to pin down the farm where that it was harvested at. But you know the names of these people who make these products, and I don't know why you don't spend more time talking about them. I think you're you're spot on. I definitely think of the people involved in production as part of the terroir. And it's funny because as you were talking, I've become very aware of how famous some winemakers are, the person making it. And if somebody else made the wine that season at that vineyard or at that at that winery, people are less interested because it wasn't made by that person, right? Or if somebody, a visiting winemaker comes in and they make wine a few batches just one time in that in that winery, that may end up becoming a super famous brand because it was made by that person, right? Now, mm-hmm. in, the, in the Oxford definition, the person's not mentioned, right? but it does mention the characteristic taste and flavor imparted by the environment in which it's produced. And that person is absolutely part of that environment. Right. Definitely. I I absolutely agree with you. And I think this is what really struck me was because the more time we spend in Okinawa visiting Awamori distilleries, we've visited a koji maker. We've gotten such a strong sense of, of what Awamori and that entire part of the country is all about. 
that even though virtually all awamori is made with imported rice from Thailand, to me, it's, it's an incredibly terroir-driven spirit. And that's probably going to upset some pedants. What do you say pedant? I don't know. Because that Thai rice is not from a local field near the, near the distillery. But the five or six or 700-year trading history between Thailand, formerly Siam, and Okinawa, formerly the Ryukyu Kingdom, that's a huge part of the history of those two countries. And rice was a commodity that Thailand would trade with Okinawa because you can't grow much rice in a cluster of islands. Sure. And people needed it for food, and then they started making alcohol from it. And it's such a part of the local culture. I mean, almost more than shochu in some ways. I feel like Okinawa doesn't have sake. They don't have a second drink that they can turn to and say, oh, that's ours too, right? It's awamori. <laughs> so it's so central to the culture, to the socialization, to the culinary experiences in Okinawa. I don't even care where the rice is coming from as long as they're using that koji that was rescued after the war and you know they're now getting their own yeasts from either the house yeast with their open fermentations and the, the distillery you mentioned, they were kind of in a flood basin. So they built, they built up the floors so that the distillery would stop flooding. And so it has really low ceilings now. And those ceilings are just covered in mold. Yeah, because they raised the floor. <laughs> right, exactly. So, and there, there's such a sense of... You feel really tall in there. Oh, you must. Yeah. I mean, I still feel like <laughs> shorter than you, but it's such a unique environment in which they're making awamori. And then like they can't age very long. They just don't have the storage space. It's a fascinating story. And I'm sure we'll do an episode about Miyazato Distillery in the future. But it's, it's like you couldn't make that awamori anywhere else. It could only be made in, in that facility by those people. Mm -hmm. And for me, if that's not terroir, I don't know what is. Right. And maybe I'm almost giving the Scotch whiskey industry a, a, a pass by using imported barley to make their malt, but maybe they deserve it too, right? A lot of those Scotch whiskeys wouldn't be what they are if they weren't made where they're made. Sure. And it's all about the, it's about the cask and the interaction between the, the wooden vessel and the, yeah, the, look, the, the environment, right? Rather sure. than the grains. The climate sense. and everything else. And the, yeah. the, the extra passes of distillation kind of divorce you from the fermentation. Yeah, fair, 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 fair. Yeah, and I guess just thinking a little bit further along in in shochu in Japan is sake li shochu, kastori shochu. If that's made from a sake that's using local rice, then you've got like terroir on top of terroir, mm -hmm. right? And then the sanabori shochu, where you're using the locally <laughs> local rice polishings, the rice bran after polishing with the sake li's. That's actually like the farmers getting together with the with the sake brewers and making it. And that's a very, very, I think, terroir-driven style, very specific to northern Kyushu and western Honshu. So I think uh, those are just a couple of other examples. And then I was thinking, uh, you and I had talked about it uh, a day or two ago with, with a chestnut shochu, mm -hmm. right? It's virtually only made in Shikoku. I don't know a lot about it, never seen it made. Uh, but the local chestnuts are really famous and they make shochu out of them. So. Yep. Just a few, yeah. few other, I guess, just little examples that I was that I thought about thought about as we were uh, thinking about this episode, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of feedback we get on the idea of the person is part of the terroir, and then in some way, I mean, I, at least with awamori, I'm advocating for, I actually want it to be considered like quite terroir, despite the fact that it's using imported grains. Mm -hmm. But maybe I'm going out too far on 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 a limb there, but uh, that's just kind of how I I feel about it. 
Yeah. So I guess the the summary to this episode is that just like everywhere else in the world, the word terroir is bandied about. I think a lot of people who use it don't necessarily understand the way that it's intended to be used initially by mm-hmm. in the wine world, particularly from Europe. But I think it, it's helpful if people understand which parts of their production might be semi or quasi or tangentially terroir and latch onto those parts and, and um, try to connect it for the end user, try to show the value in that for the consumer. So whether you're importing your raw materials from half a world away or a quarter of a world away, or you're going all the way to the nth degree and, and leaving fermentations open and just hoping that the yeast are going to hop in there, then there's a story you can tell. And I think there's value that is added from those stories of focusing on the locale, focusing on that sense of place. Mm-hmm. I, th- that, I think that's a great, great point. And I realized that our last episode actually with Tanuki showed you the interviews with the gentleman from South Africa fit into this as well, because they're now experimenting with using South African sweet potatoes and sorghum to make shochu. Hmm. Wow. On the other hand, they're importing their koji from Japan. <laughs> yeah, everybody does. Right. So it's, it's just too stable, right? Sure. Too good. Sure. Yep. Yep. Uh, anyway, yeah, no fascinating discussion. And, you know, it's not just in, in shochu and awamori. I know that that's what we spend a lot of our time talking on the show, since that's the the predominant distilling traditions here in Japan, but Japanese rum, right? There's definitely a sense of terroir. Again, if you're using locally grown cane or molasses or, uh, or even kokuto, there are kokuto sugar rums in Japan. Uh, those again have a very distinct terroir, I think, story behind them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really fun to explore. And of course, I think for, for spirits geeks like you and I, it's, it's our, it's our sweet spot. It's what we, what we love thinking about and talking about and experiencing. But hopefully this gets uh, other people interested as well. You sipping on anything? I am. I actually am drinking Hitori Aruki Koshu. Oh, nice. So this is a uh, sweet potato shochu from Furusawa Distillery in Miyazaki. It's made with joy white sweet potatoes, locally grown. And what I thought was really interesting, I didn't realize this before because I'm not sure she'd ever introduced me to her koshu before, but they, she uses a Solera system. It's a blend of different vintages of her Hitori Aruki Shochu. And so it has several different years of blend in the, in the distillate. And I'm drinking it twice up, which has become my preferred style of, of slow sipping, where it's 50-50 cold water and, and shochu no ice. Uh, and it's no lovely. Ice, yeah. Really beautiful flavor and aroma profile. I realized I really do like Joy White. I know um, some of the shochu makers... And even shochu lovers don't really care for it because they think if it is a cheaper sweet potato, I think it's just not as expensive per kilogram. But I really like how it expresses. So that, that was my uh, choice for this terroir episode. How about you? I'm still, my, my head and my heart are still in Okinawa. We just got back from there late last week. Uh, so I'm sipping Kumejima no Kumesen. It's just their Ippanshu, their regular unaged uh, product, their main product. And it's just, I don't know. Every time I go back there, I get fall more in love with it. So don't be too surprised if one of these times coming up, I never come back. It's hard not to. Okinawa is wonderful. It's a really, really special place. Not sure I want to live there, but uh, mm-hmm. I want to visit as often as I can. So yeah, cheers to that. Good stuff. This is, yeah. this is fun. Long overdue, Goodbye. as we often say. Thank you all very much for listening. If you have not already, then please consider rating and reviewing Japan Distilled wherever you enjoy listening to these episodes. 
it really helps others to find the show. And please feel free to reach out to us on either Twitter or Instagram. You can find me at Chris Pellegrini on Twitter and at Christopher Pellegrini on Instagram. Uh, and you can reach out to me at Japan Distilled on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for the show notes on this and every other episode. Lots of uh, interesting information, photographs, links, etc. And please tune in to our Japan Distilled show Tuesday, every Tuesday evening, 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight in the U.S. and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And of course, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash japandistilled. And thank you for those that already have. We really appreciate it. We do have some cool stuff coming. It's just going to take a little time. Probably during the winter downtime, uh, we'll be able to get some things moving as thank yous for everybody. But we really do appreciate the support. It helps us take care of Rich Pav, who does an incredible job editing the show. Thank you, Rich. And thank you to everyone out there from both of us here in Japan, to all of you out there in just Japan distilled world. A very hearty and heartfelt kanpai. Kanpai. Kanpai.